Before we get into another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to Jude 3 Project at P.O. Box 26206, Jacksonville, Florida, 32226. Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jude 3 Project. And today I'm joined by a special guest who's no stranger to the Jude 3 Project. He's been on, he was on a few months ago, Dr. Fazal Rana. Welcome, Dr. Rana. Uh, Lisa, it's so wonderful to have you, uh, or to be with you, I should say, and to have a chance to spend time with you. And, and please call me Fuzz. Okay. <laughs> All right, Fuzz. Um, uh, for those who didn't see you the uh, time before, just give them a little bit of background. Yeah, well, um, uh, I currently work for a ministry called Reasons to Believe, and the focus of our ministry is to show how the latest discoveries in science provide evidence for God's existence and the reliability of scripture. Uh, I'm a biochemist by training, uh, and, and this idea of using science as a way to build a bridge to the gospel is really very important to me because it was uh, work, my work in biochemistry as a graduate student that convinced me that there had to be a creator. At that point, I was an agnostic until going to graduate school, and it was the reality of the uh, of the evidence for a creator's existence that opened me up to hearing the gospel. So, you know, I, I believe that science, because it has such a strong influence in our world today, um, because so many people respect the pronouncements of science can be a very powerful connecting point to the gospel in, in a, a day and age where technology reigns supreme. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I, I love your work. Uh, because people think faith and science are odds and you show how they actually work together. So that's very, very helpful to the body of Christ. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about Darwin. It was Darwin Day yesterday, which I wasn't aware of until your team sent me an email about Darwin Day. Can you explain to our um, audience what Darwin Day is? Yeah, well, uh, Darwin Day is uh, a day where Typically on university campuses around the world, people celebrate uh, the birth of Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin was born February 12, 1809. And in 2009, that was the 150th anniversary of the publication of 
Origins of Species, where Darwin lays out his theory of evolution. It was also the 200th anniversary of his birth. And so in honor of those milestones, uh, there were these worldwide celebrations of Darwin, the man, the scientist, and his legacy. And that has continued uh, to this very day, where, again, typically on university campuses, biology departments will uh, instigate these Darwin Day celebrations, which is a way, again, to promote uh, Darwin's scientific legacy. And so uh, uh, for many people, you know, Darwin's theory of evolution and biological evolution in a broader sense represents a, a challenge to the Christian faith or represents a challenge to the idea that God exists. Uh, because many people reason, look, if evolutionary mechanisms can explain the origin and the design and the history of life, well, then why do you need a creator? And in fact, when I was an undergraduate student, that was kind of the mentality I had. Uh, I accepted the evolutionary paradigm. I was an agnostic. And so when people would share their faith with me, it just didn't have an impact because to me, why do you need to appeal to a creator? And I meet so many people that adopt that mindset. So it's very important, I think, as Christians to be aware of these kind of Darwin Day celebrations and and, and to be willing to offer uh, a response or a counter narrative to this idea that mechanism alone can explain life and a creator is not needed. Awesome. Awesome. So give a brief picture of what Darwin had available um, to work with when he wrote The Origin of Species and maybe a little ba- a bit about um, the man himself. Yeah. Well, you know, Darwin is a, is a fascinating historical figure. Um, he has a very interesting upbringing. In fact, he was a medical school dropout. Uh, it wasn't because he couldn't intellectually handle medicine. It was he didn't like the gore associated with cutting into human bodies. Uh, and he actually, uh, at his father's urging, studied Christian theology at the university. So he was trained to be a clergyman. I don't know if many people realize that. Oh, wow. And uh, and then he was self-taught as a, a scientist, as a naturalist, and uh, was his family was independently wealthy. And so he was like a gentleman scientist in those days. Um, uh, very interesting figure who had also a uh, uh, he was he was uh, he struggled with a lifelong illness that was debilitating. His wife Emma Darwin was a a, a, a very strong Christian influence uh, in the household and in the community. So a very interesting person who uh, became very angry at God with the death of his daughter Anne, who was ten years old and died. Um, and that death really catalyzed Darwin to produce the book. Uh, on the origin of species, where he lays out his theory of biological evolution. But when Darwin wrote Origins of Species, interestingly enough, most of what we know today that constitutes modern biology was unknown to Darwin. For example, Darwin had no idea how inheritance took place. We hadn't discovered genes as of yet when Darwin wrote his his Origin of Species. Uh, Darwin's view of the cell was that it was a blob of jelly surrounded by a cell envelope, that it wasn't very complex. Darwin had really no appreciation for the history of life on Earth. So he was really operating um, in a knowledge vacuum to a large degree when he wrote Origins of Species. And so uh, a few years ago, uh, my, my colleague Hugh Ross and I wrote a little booklet 
called What Darwin Didn't Know, where we just kind of asked the fun question, if, if Darwin knew uh, today, sorry, if Jar- check that, if Darwin knew then what we know today about biology, would he have advanced this theory of evolution? Mm-hmm. And that leads to, to, the, to my next question. What do you think the two most um, significant scientific facts that if Darwin had known might have greatly impacted his theory? Yeah, well, that that's, uh, you know, those are those are fun questions to speculate about. And, you know, it's interesting when Darwin wrote um, on the origin of species, he had an entire chapter devoted to uh, difficulties with his theory. And so these were places where he realized that there were features of nature that didn't line up with what he would have expected if indeed his theory was valid. And so Darwin was intellectually honest in, in pointing out those difficulties with his theory. And those are great places to start in terms of uh, uh, asking the question, you know, if Darwin knew then what we know now, would he have advanced this theory? Uh, One thing that Darwin lamented about was the way the fossil record looked, the patterns in the fossil record. Because Darwin expected that evolution would happen gradually. Well, if that was the case, then the fossil record should show gradual evolutionary transformations. It should show um, a lot of transitional forms. But instead, what the fossil record in Darwin's day showed were were that groups would appear suddenly uh, without any kind of history preceding them in an evolutionary sense. And then they would remain unchanged or, or static before they would disappear from the fossil record. Uh, So that troubled Darwin. Uh, But in addition to that, Darwin was aware of something called what we now call today the Cambrian explosion. And this is an event in life's history where out of nowhere, complex animals show up suddenly in the fossil record. These are called the Cambrian strata. And uh, beneath those strata of rocks, there's nothing there's no evolutionary history, then suddenly this explosion of animal forms takes place. And, and Darwin was very troubled by that. Well, what's interesting is Darwin said, look, if, if we uh, continue to collect more fossils uh, and study geological layers, these problems are going to evaporate. That's what he wrote in The Origin of Species. Well, it's interesting, 160 years later, the fossil record in terms of its pattern still looks the same. Things show up suddenly in the fossil record. They remain unchanged and then they disappear. There's a dearth of transitional intermediate forms. And the Cambrian explosion looks like it's a real event that today defies evolutionary explanation. So when you just look at that, the, the difficulties that Darwin identified uh, and, and realize that those difficulties persist today, that to me is, is reason, I think, if you're a thinking person, to to be skeptical that of maybe the grand claim that evolution can explain everything in biology. Mm-hmm. That's that's very helpful. For those who are listening, what is the Miller Array um, experiment, and why is it still in our textbooks? Yeah. Well, one of the things that Darwin um, uh, wrote about, he didn't write about this in Origin of Species, but he wrote about this in a letter to one of his friends named Joseph Hooker, where he speculated that maybe life originated in a warm little pond, where he envisioned uh, chemicals in this environment where 
some kind of energy source would catalyze the reaction of those chemicals to form the very first cells. So he applied, in a sense, his theory of evolution to molecules, saying that this is how the very first life forms could originate. Uh, and of course, at that time, Darwin viewed the, the cell um, as, again, this protoplasm, uh, this very simple jelly-like material with a, a cell wall surrounding it. Um, and uh, and so it's very easy to see how Darwin could think that maybe something like a cell could emerge through that mechanism. Well, into the 1920s, a Russian biochemist uh, by the name of Alexander Oparin and uh, a British geneticist by the name of J.B.S. Haldane, both of them, uh, both gentlemen were atheists, by the way, took Darwin's idea of a warm little pond and they basically pro produced an elaborate chemical pathway in which they thought life could originate. Along comes Stanley Miller in the 1950s. Uh, and he does this famous experiment that you probably have seen in your biology textbook, Lisa. It, it's a, this glass apparatus where Miller was trying to mimic the conditions of the early earth. And he had a flask of boiling water. And in the headspace, he had hydrogen and ammonia and methane and had this continuous electrical discharge going through the headspace. And lo and behold, he was able to produce amino acids, which were the, the building blocks that are used to make proteins. And so it looked as if Miller essentially validated Darwin's idea of this warm little pond. Well, lo and behold, uh, uh, this, again, experiment was done in the 1950s. Probably by the, the late 1990s, um, uh, planetary scientists realized that the conditions that Miller used in this Miller-Urey experiment were not the conditions that actually existed on the early Earth. So instead of ammonia and methane and water, the atmosphere looks to be nitrogen, carbon dioxide, and water. And that gas mix will not produce anything in a Miller-Urey experiment. It just Nothing forms. And so people now consider that experiment to be irrelevant to the origin of life, but yet it still shows up in biology textbooks as this illustration that even evolution can explain uh, the origin of life. And you know, I think it's significant to note that today, uh, most people who are in the scientific community, particularly people that work on the origin of life problem, many who are atheists will agree we have no explanation for the origin of life. So this is one of those examples where these these I, these ideas still re, re, remain in textbooks, um, though they shouldn't really be there any longer. It's maddening to see that. But it's it's just part of the the package that we have to deal with, I think, as Christians. Mm -hmm. That's that's very good that you pointed out that, because I think as we are navigating this and students are going off to college and even in high school and middle school reading books, um, the assumption is that this stuff is credible as it relates, especially as it relates to science and you pointing that out. Um, I think it's helpful because so many are so many students are intimidated by their professors or what's in their books. And so when it comes to faith, they kind of surrender their faith because of the information. But I think you pointing that out, um, I think is very important and helpful um, for us to know that we have the ability to challenge what's written in our scientific textbooks um, as believers. So thank you for sharing that. Um, in your opinion, do you think 
that if Darwin was alive today and had the science available to him, um, that he be as committed to his original theory um, of Darwin, Darwinist evolution, Darwinist, Darwinian evolutions as the Darwinist evolutions, Lucianists are. I'm sorry, <laughs> getting stuck on that last line there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, you know. I think Darwin would have still uh, advanced his theory of evolution because what Darwin was trying to do with his theory of, of evolution was not just simply uh, answer a scientific question, namely, how do you explain the origin of species. He was actually uh, trying to, to um, in a sense, modernize biology, at least in his mind. Because in the early 1800s, most people that worked in biology saw design in nature, in biological systems, as the handiwork of a creator. So biology was a teleological enterprise. And what I mean by that, it was built around the concept of design, where the design that we saw in biology was real design, again, the creator's handiwork. And in a sense, biology was unique among the scientific disciplines because every other scientific discipline at that time was based on mechanism and materialistic explanations. This was true for physics and for chemistry, astronomy, and geology. And so what Darwin did with his theory of evolution was he had now a mechanism that could not only explain the origin of species, but according to Darwin, could explain the origin of major groups, could even account for the design that you see in biology where uh, evolutionary mechanisms became the blind watchmaker replacing William Paley's divine watchmaker. So Darwin moved biology into this mechanistic arena. Uh, that's why people refer to it as the Darwinian revolution. But also Darwin was doing something else and remember, I said that he wrote uh, Origin of Species after the death of his daughter, Anne. Well, Darwin, even though he was trained as a clergyman, lo gradually lost his faith. And what kind of was the final trigger was the death of his daughter, Anne. Now, when you read Darwin's writings, he at times will use religious language. But I think that was just simply... Uh, a, a nod on his part to the fact that there were people of religious sensibilities that he didn't want to offend. But I think it, I actually believe that in his heart of hearts, Darwin had become an atheist. And so for him, he couldn't imagine how God could allow there to be pain and suffering in the world, how the world looks to be so cruel. And so for him, the theory of evolution, where that mechanism supplanted the creator, was his solution to the problem of evil. And I meet, you know, so many people that are atheists today, and their complaint is that how could there be a creator if there's so much pain and suffering in the world? And many times they're not even referring to human pain and suffering. They will just turn to nature and say, nature just looks to be red in tooth and claw, to, to, to quote Alfred Lord Tennyson. And, and, um, and, and so Darwin was in that category. In fact, he, he wrote a letter to his, a, fr a friend of his named Asa Gray, who was a, a botanist at Harvard University. And Asa Gray was one of the first scientists in America to embrace Darwin's theory of evolution. Asa Gray was also a Presbyterian and a very committed Christian. And he wrote Darwin this question, could God have used evolution to create? And Darwin rejected that idea out of hand 
because he couldn't imagine how a creator could use evolution to create when he saw the world in, in nature being so cruel. In fact, he, he wrote these words, these famous words, what a book a devil's chaplain might write on the clumsy, blundering, horribly low works of nature. And so Darwin couldn't even see how God could use evolution as a way to create. So I think Darwin would have advanced his theory of evolution because it's not just a scientific explanation for origins. It, it's essentially uh, f- kind of forcing uh, biology into this framework where only materialistic explanations are allowed. It removes any kind of evidence or uh, signature of design from creation, and it serves as a, a solution for Darwin and for many other people as a, a solution to the problem of evil. Mm-hmm. I think that's um, so helpful um, because as I, I remember um, in class one time in undergrad, I was going back and forth with my professor and there was a kind of an outburst of why did God allow, I think, um, my daughter to have a Down syndrome. And so the response, um, while it had, the conversation had been a lot of kind of logic and philosophy, when it got down to the core, it was a uh, kind of an emotional issue at the root of it. And it was kind of masked by philosophical ideologies. Um, And so to think about Darwin's daughter, Anne, and that was kind of the the straw that, um, that kind of brought all this to uh, fruition in his mind, him trying to really solve the problem of evil is is really at the core of a lot of conversations I think we're having with people who are atheists um, or agnostic, them wrestling with real pain and navigating through the questions about science, but then also getting to the core of why they believe or why they're struggling with the belief in God. Do you see that regularly on college campuses? As well? Oh, yes, all the time. I mean, it, you know, the, the, the number one response to any kind of design argument would be to try to point out features in nature that look like they are poorly designed. And, and, and the objection is a creator would never do that. Uh, and, and that's essentially a, a, a variation of the, of the problem of evil. But as you've so perceptively pointed out, Lisa, there's usually something that is a, a deep-seated emotional hurt that people have where they're angry at God in the same way that, that Darwin was angry at God. And then as a result, could only make sense of that if God just simply didn't exist. And so, you know, the, the interesting thing is, uh, so, you know, when we, when we talk about the use of science as a way to build a bridge to the gospel or use of science to defend the, the truth claims of the Christian faith, many of the arguments that we would make are ultimately philosophical arguments. And many of the objections to the arguments are ultimately philosophical and theological objections. And so for people that uh, are maybe a, are a little intimidated by using science in in apologetics and Christian apologetics, the thing to keep in mind is that science just is the veneer. What really is going on at the end of the day are theological and philosophical discussions. Uh, and so when people realize that, then I think it's they're much better able to appropriately use science without being intimidated by all the scientific jargon, if you just understand the scientific concepts and, and how the, they, they feed into the philosophical arguments, you can go a long way to using science to make a case for a creator 
But then when you realize it all boils down at the end of the day to the problem of evil, that you have to be equipped philosophically, theologically, and biblically to, to answer that question. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. I'm, I'm, I'm looking, combing through your, your book, and um, I think this is a question that I want to ask you before we close out, because I think a lot of people see these visuals and don't know what they mean. Um, who were the hominids? Okay, well, um, the, the, the hominids are these creatures that appear in the fossil record, uh, creatures like Neanderthals, Homo erectus, Homo habilis, Lucy, that people are probably familiar with those nicknames. And for many people, they would view those as being uh, essentially evolutionary transitional forms documenting the evolutionary origin of humanity. Uh, but um, uh, one way that I would view those creatures as a, as a old earth creationist is that these were real creatures that existed but that they were creatures that were created by God that existed and then went extinct, that they had some limited intelligence and emotional capability, but they, they lacked a quality that only human beings have, and that is uh, the image of God. So that's how I view the hominids from an old earth creationist perspective. But many people will look at them and say, well, this is very compelling evidence for human evolution. But the fact of the matter is um, every one of those hominids that we typically see in the, that, that ascent of man imagery, right? Almost all, all, every one of them, actually, not almost all of them, but every one of them are evolutionary side branches and dead ends, even if you view that them from an evolutionary standpoint. So most anthropologists think Neanderthals didn't evolve into humans. They question whether or not Homo erectus was part of the human or lineage. Uh, people don't know where Lucy fits and so the, the fact of the matter is you cannot draw this pathway through the hominin fossil record and show a very clear evolutionary trajectory that leads to the origin of humanity. The fossil record doesn't really show that uh, whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I think that's definitely very helpful. Um, for those who want to know more about this topic, um, obviously you're going to recommend your book. Um, and then is there any other resources on, on your website that they could take a look at as well? You know, if people r- want to uh, get into this whole question of can evolution explain the origin, the history, and the design of life, the best thing to do is probably go to our website at reasons.org. And there are just tons of articles uh, that we've written. Uh, there's podcasts, there's videos that people can start to sample and get um, some familiarity with, um, you know, the, the topic uh, before they they necessarily feel like they have to invest money to buy books. Not that I, I'm I'm discouraging people from buying the books that we write, but you know, um, I think it's it's a great place to start is just to begin to sample some of the articles, uh, you know, and keep in mind that when you start to sample the articles, you're kind of in the middle of a conversation, so there'll be a little bit of catch up that you'll have to to engage in, but uh, that's probably the best way to start. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't want to uh, leave without recommending this book on uh, what did, da- what Darwin did, Darwin didn't know. Um, yeah. uh, Cause it's helpful in dealing with what we just talked about to give you a little bit more in depth. Where can they get that book? Well, they can get that book if they go to our website at reasons.org, but actually uh, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to do this. I'm going to do this anyway. Uh, if people, 
scroll down on our website, reasons.org, towards the bottom, there's a microphone, and above it, there's a caption that says, a free gift for you. If people click on that and give us their contact information, we will email your listeners and your viewers a a free PDF copy of that book. It's just a short little booklet, but we'll send them a a free PDF copy of that booklet. So that's uh, our gift uh, to your to your listeners and your viewers. Awesome, awesome! I thank you for that. Um, I think they're going to enjoy it, and I think it's helpful as we have um, parents uh, that listen to this that are struggling to navigate this topic with their children. Uh, We have millennials and Gen Z listening trying to navigate with school. So I think this will be an excellent resource for them. And I thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Um, how can people get in contact with you on social media? Yeah, if I've got a, a, um, a both a public figure and a personal Facebook page that I maintain. So people can just search my name uh, on uh, Facebook or uh, on Twitter. I should probably write, I never can remember my <laughs> Twitter and my <laughs> Facebook uh, handles, but um, if they just search my name, they'll find, they'll find me, or they can go to RTB underscore official uh, at, on Facebook or Twitter. And through there, they can find uh, how they can connect with me on Facebook and Twitter, but I'm pretty active on, on, on social media. I try to be anyway. And so, uh, and uh, so people can find me that way. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Fuzz. I really appreciate you coming uh, back to talk to us. Yeah, my, my pleasure. I'm really honored. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.